I'm grateful for the songs that we sang this morning. Uh, I was, as I was preparing this, I was thinking, what, what songs, what hymns go along with this? Um, and they were perfect. They were perfect. So I uh, thank you, whoever chose the hymns. That was great. The book of Jonah is different from all other prophetic books. It's one of the minor prophets, but it actually contains very little prophecy. In reality, it's a historical biography. It's about the messenger, not as much about the message. It's about the prophet, not so much his prophecy. It's a small glimpse a very small glimpse, an honest glimpse into the life of Jonah, the son of Amittai. Jonah was called by God to go and cry out to the people of Nineveh and warn them of God's judgment, which was to come upon them. We don't know who wrote the book. We assume it was Jonah, We also don't have a specific time in which these events took place. We do know that Jonah was a prophet during the reign of Jeroboam II, king of Israel, the northern kingdom. But that doesn't necessarily mean that God's call for him to go to Nineveh took place during that time. It may have, it may not have. So we don't have a whole lot of details about this whole book. All we really have is the text. So that's what we're going to look at this morning. We're only going to uh, look at the first chapter. Before we do, pray with me, please, and we will ask God to bless this time. Father, as we come, we pray that you will open our hearts, our minds, our spiritual eyes to learn from your word, from, from this first chapter of the book of Jonah, what you have for us to learn. May we hear you speak to us in Jesus' name. Amen. So we begin. Point number one, God commissions Jonah. This is the call. This is the call. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and cry out against it. For their wickedness has come up before me. Here we have a command. God tells Jonah what he is supposed to do. Get up and go. Very simple. Get up and go. God then tells Jonah where he is supposed to do it. In Nineveh, the great city. Then again we read what Jonah is supposed to do. He's supposed to go and cry out against that city. And then we learn why. Why does God want Jonah to go? Because their wickedness has come before God. So Jonah is told right away what he is supposed to do, where he's supposed to do it, and why he's supposed to do it. Very clear instructions. Before we go on, let's, let's make this practical. Because I think all of us have had times in our lives when we have to make a decision. And we say, God, if you just told me what I was supposed to do, life would be so easy. 
or where I was supposed to do it, or who I was supposed to do it with. What job do you want me to take, this or this? Where do you want me to live, here or here? Which car do you want me to buy? Where do you want me to go to school, if you want me to go to school? Who am I supposed to marry, if you want me to marry? Just lay it all out for me, and I will do it. Well, that's as long as we agree with what God tells us to do. But if we don't agree with God's command, as Jonah didn't, then we have a problem. It becomes very hard to obey God when he clearly tells us something that we do not want to do. So going back to the text, God tells Jonah, get up and go to Nineveh and warn them of God's judgment. The only other Old Testament reference we have to Jonah is in 2 Kings 14. And as I mentioned earlier, this is during the reign of King Jeroboam II, king of Israel, from around 790 to 750 B.C., somewhere in there. And this is what we read in those, the, that passage. In the 15th year of Amaziah, the son of Josiah, king of Judah... Jeroboam, that's who we're talking about, the son of Joash, king of Israel, became king in Samaria, and he reigned 41 years. And he did evil in the sight of the Lord, as all the kings of the northern kingdom did. He did not depart from all the sins of Jeroboam, that's a different Jeroboam now, the son of Nebat, who made Israel sin. But this Jeroboam, the second, he restored the territory of Israel from the entrance of Hamath to the sea of the Arabah, according to the word of the Lord God of Israel, which he had spoken through his servant Jonah, the son of Amittai, the prophet who was from Gath-Hefer. So, according to this verse, Jonah had prophesied about the expansion of the land of Israel according to what God had told him to do. And it happened during the reign of King Jeroboam II. God had spoken through his prophet. The prophecy had come about. Jonah had, in the past, been faithful to what God told him to do. During this time, the northern kingdom of Israel was experiencing great optimism. The expansion of their territory, which is what we just read, brought about greater economic prosperity. But at the same time, the Assyrian Empire, which was a mighty empire, was in a slight state of decline. They were not forgotten by any means, and Israel did not know that in a matter of a few years, the Assyrians would once again become a strong political power and would conquer Israel and take them into captivity, assuming that this prophecy to go to Nineveh took place during the King King, uh, Jeroboam reign, which is something we do not know. So point number one was God's commission to Jonah. Point number two, Jonah rejects God's commission. Very simple. The commission to go, point number two, Jonah says, no, I won't go. And the contrast here between God's commissioning Jonah and Jonah's rejecting the commission is astonishing. And the author writes it in a very clear and dramatic fashion. So verse 3, but, B-U-T, but. 
So even when we use the word but today, it changes everything that preceded it. Yeah, I know this and this and this, but, okay, so that's kind of no longer the case. Yeah, I know I was supposed to do my homework, but, so it negates everything. So he rejects God's commission, but, so Jonah arose, good so far, because God told him to get up, and he went, still good, because God told him to go. So, so far, he's okay. But Jonah arose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa. He found a ship going to Tarshish. He paid the fare. He went down into it to go with them to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. Great verse. This clearly describes the effort the thought, the planning, the energy that Jonah had to, f- to flee from the presence of the Lord. Now, you can look in the back of your Bibles if you have maps. Joppa is a port city on the banks of the Mediterranean Sea, southwest of Samaria, the capital of Israel. And so that's why we read that Jonah went down from Samaria to Joppa. And let me go back to verse 1. In verse 1, we read, one time, God tells Jonah to go to Nineveh. He says it only once. This is the command. In verse 3, we read two times that Jonah was determined to flee from the presence of the Lord. And we read three times that Jonah went to Tarshish instead. Very clearly, the author is saying, Jonah wants nothing to do with obeying God. Pure disobedience, total defiance, complete rebellion against God's command. And this is a remarkable fact, especially coming from a prophet of God. So Jonah's heading to Tarshish. We're not exactly sure where this is, but it's likely somewhere on the southern coast of Spain. So instead of heading 500 miles northeast from Israel to Nineveh, Jonah flees 2,000 miles west to Tarshish. At that time, probably considered about as far away as you can go. So it's like being in Pittsburgh, God calling you to go to Boston, and you say, no, I'm headed for San Diego. Opposite direction, as far away as I can get. During the reign of King Solomon, ships that were going to Tarshish would not return for up to three years. So Jonah may have been planning to be gone far away and be gone for quite some time. And depending upon what translation you read, you will notice that there is a key word in in this verse, verse 3, that's translated differently. Some translations say that Jonah ran away from the Lord. Or simply that he headed off in another direction. This is not what happened. Jonah did not simply run away from God. He fled. Words are very different. You run in a race. You don't flee in a race. You run home. You don't flee home unless someone is chasing you, someone that you dislike very much. This word gives the idea of wanting to escape, of swiftness. It implies fear. It's the same word that was used in Exodus chapter 2 
after Moses had killed an Egyptian, and it was discovered, discovered, this is what we read, when Pharaoh heard of this matter, he sought to kill Moses, but Moses fled. He didn't just run. He fled from the face of Pharaoh and dwelt in the land of Midian. Moses wasn't just running away. He was fleeing for his very life because Pharaoh wanted to kill him. Same word here. Jonah was fleeing from the presence of God. Perhaps he figured that if he fled to the opposite end of the world and stayed there a while, that God would have to find someone else to go to Nineveh. Commentators have suggested this as a possibility. But why else might Jonah not have wanted to go to Nineveh? Jonah knew about the Assyrians. Assyria was one of Israel's fiercest and cruelest enemies. The Assyrians were known not only for their military power, but also for their torture. Assyrian national history consists almost totally of military campaigns and battles. And then I read this quote. It is as gory and blood-curdling a history as we know. The Assyrians created an enormous empire. They mastered the art of war. Unfortunately, they also mastered the art of torture. And they bragged about it. The Assyrian kings used brutality as a weapon. It was psychological warfare, and it worked. The news of extreme terror spread fast. Entire cities surrendered at the mere sight of the approaching Assyrian army. No wonder, no wonder Jonah did not want to go to Nineveh. So we've had point number one, the commission. Point number two, Jonah rejects the commission. And point number three, I didn't plan it this way. It was just very clear in the, in the text here. God remains committed to the commission. God remains committed. God is intent on bringing Jonah back to where he needs to be, to where God wants him. Because God is sovereign. Jonah is not. And the rest of this chapter focuses around the events that will bring Jonah back in line to where God wants him to be. From here up until all the way down to verse 17, we read the account, the developments that take place, all according to God's design. God is not about to have his purpose for Jonah averted. So, again, we have this little powerful word. Verse 4, God told Jonah to get up and go. Jonah rose up to flee, and now we read verse 4, but it changes things again. But the Lord sent out a great wind on the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship was about to be broken up. This wasn't just a storm This ship was about to fall apart. The author tells us to what extent God is committed to bringing about his will. A bad storm, and then the ship almost breaking apart. We can assume that these are seasoned sailors that are on board the ship. They're used to sailing on the Mediterranean Sea. There are violent storms on the Mediterranean Sea. Let me just give you an example. There's violent storms that have taken place on the Great Lakes. Some estimates are that 
there have been 10,000 shipwrecks on the Great Lakes. And many, many, many lives have been lost. The combined area of the Great Lakes is just under 100,000 square miles, which is big. That's all the Great Lakes put together. The combined, well, the, the area for the Mediterranean Sea is 10 times that big, just under 1 million square miles. Big storms that these sailors are likely accustomed to, but this one was different. We read in verse 5, The storm was so bad that the sailors became afraid and started crying out, each of them, to his own God. So in this polytheistic culture, the sailors realized that something was different. Some deity must have caused the storm. They did not know which god of which sailor was responsible, so they each cried out to their own gods, hoping that one of these gods would respond with mercy and stop the storm. They were crying out for assistance, not in repentance. But Jonah had gone down into the lowest part of the ship and had fallen fast asleep, sound asleep, into a deep sleep. And again, we see God's sovereignty here because this is not just a sleep. This is a divinely designed sleep. Back in Genesis 15, the Abrahamic covenant, where Abraham had cut the animals in two and had placed them opposite each other and God had passed through. We read there that there was a deep sleep that had come over Abraham. That was designed, that was orchestrated by God. And so that's what's happening here. As the storm is outside, Jonah is fast asleep, sound asleep, made to sleep by God. Verse 6, the captain approached him, the man in charge of all the passengers on board the ship, the captain of the ship, the man that Jonah had submitted himself to unofficially, merely by paying his fare and boarding the ship. The captain comes to Jonah and he says, get up. And cry out to your God. Jonah had heard these words before. His heavenly master, the one to whom Jonah had pledged allegiance as a prophet of God, had also said these words to him not long before. Get up and cry out. Now he hears them again. And the captain continues. Listen to what he says. Call on your God. Perhaps your God will be concerned about us so that we will not perish. Call on your God. Perhaps your God will be concerned about us so that we will not perish. This must have sounded very familiar to Jonah. They mimic God's commission to Jonah. Get up. Arise. Call out. Cry out to the people of Nineveh. The captain's comment was that perhaps Jonah's God may be concerned about them so that they would not perish. Perhaps. This is exactly who Jonah's God was. He was concerned about them. He was concerned about the Ninevites. And he was concerned about Jonah. 
This must have pierced the very heart of Jonah. Call on my God? I'm fleeing from my God. My God concerned so that people will not perish? Boy, is he ever concerned that people will not perish. That's that's who my God is. And as the storm raged outside, Jonah's insides must have been so much in turmoil as as he heard these words from the captain of the ship. He again had to face this command from God. Jonah is mocked by the captain's words, the command to get up and cry out. This is all much too real for Jonah. And so in verse 7, they cast lots to see who is the source of all their trouble. And the prophet who was chosen by God to bring about mercy to the Ninevites, a Gentile nation, is now the sailor who again is chosen by lot, chosen by God, through the lot, to bring calamity and hardship to those who also are non-Israelites. And so the lot falls on Jonah. And they immediately began peppering him with questions, but not until they give him a command. The New King James translates it, and Mark read it for, read it for us this morning, please tell us. Well, I'm not sure that they were just exactly that polite. They were being respectful, and that would have been the culture and the time. But they didn't have a whole lot of time, did they? Uh, They wanted an immediate answer. They weren't just standing around visiting. Tell us, tell us now. Tell us now. They're perhaps confirming the selection of of the lot, or they simply wanted Jonah to confess his crime now that he had been singled out as the one at fault. Who are you? They asked. What do you do? Where do you come from? Who are your people? In verse 9, Jonah proceeds to tell them who he is. And the text itself shows us that he answers the last question first. I'm a Hebrew. And I fear the Lord God of heaven who made the sea and dry land. That's who Jonah says he is. But let's stop here a minute. I fear the Lord God of heaven. Really, Jonah? Do you? So for a few minutes, I'd like to change gears. I'd like to direct you to a different account. If you could turn with me back to Genesis chapter 22. Genesis chapter 22, the account of Abraham and God's command for him to offer up his only son, Isaac, as a burnt offering. We have, in Genesis 22, verse 2, we have the command, or as in Jonah's case, the commissioning. And God says to Abraham, Take now your son, your only son, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah, and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I will tell you. This is not unlike the commission that God gave to Jonah. Abraham receives a command from God. He is told what to do. He is also given a a proximity of where he is to do it. He is not told why, but Jonah was. But look at the commands themselves. They both seem unreasonable, irrational, 
Abraham is supposed to kill his heir by whom God had promised him a great nation. Jonah is to pronounce judgment to Israel's fiercest enemy. What would happen to Jonah? These commands are absurd. But notice the difference in the response. Abraham gets up and obeys the command. Jonah gets up and he tries to flee from the presence of the Lord. And as Abraham continues to obey God and do what God told him to do, step by step, we're told in Hebrews that he even believed that God could raise up Isaac from the dead if he wanted to. So Abraham obeyed God. He had good reason to obey God. He had received a promise from God a few years earlier that he and Sarai would have a child and that Abraham would become the father of a great nation. Well, Abraham and Sarai knew that that was impossible, so they decided to help God out. That caused problems for them, and then they realized that Sarai was going to have a baby when she was 90 years old, and all of a sudden Abraham and Sarai realized that God was able to keep his promises no matter how absurd they were. And when Abram raised his hand with that knife to slay his son, God said to him, Do not lay your hand on the lad or do anything to him, for now I know that you fear God, since you have not withheld your son. God knew Abraham feared him because of his actions, because of what he did. A couple of verses in Psalms, we read, How blessed is everyone who fears the Lord who walks in his ways. Another passage in Psalms, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. A good understanding have all of those who do his commandments. His praise endures forever. Praise the Lord. Blessed is the man who fears the Lord, who delights greatly in his commandments. This was not Jonah. Jonah tells the sailors that he fears God. He is not telling them that he is righteous or innocent, He's telling them of his relationship to the God of heaven, or rather what his relationship should be to the God of heaven. And this idea of fear gives the understanding that God not only wants our adoration, our worship, our devotion, but he also demands our obedience. Jonah had a history of obeying God. He had seen God work, but he did not want God to work in the hearts and lives of the Ninevites. And so in verse 10, the men were exceedingly afraid. The same word here that's used when Jonah says he fears God. These men were exceedingly afraid. They understood that Jonah was fleeing from the God of heaven, the one who made the sea in which they were and the dry land where they wished they were, I guess. Jonah had told them, This was a huge impact on the sailors. They seemed to have a much greater fear of God than Jonah did. And they said to him, how can you do this? These men were literally afraid, literally scared to death. They are convinced now that Jonah's God, the God of heaven, the maker of the sea, the dry land, has brought this violent storm upon them because of their shipmate who is fleeing from the presence of the Lord. And the author makes a point of bringing this to our attention, reminding us again 
of what Jonah is attempting to do. He is attempting to flee. But he will never succeed in fleeing from the presence of the Lord. Everything that Jonah is telling these sailors makes sense. He's fleeing from God. They're in the midst of this storm. It's his fault. And they are bewildered with who he is and why he is doing this. And so they ask him, what should we do with you so that the sea will become calm? Because it was getting worse. It wasn't just staying the same. It wasn't getting better. It was getting worse. And Jonah says in verse 12, pick me up and throw me into the sea and it will become calm because I know this is my fault. Pick me up and throw me into the sea. Now you and I know what happens. But Jonah didn't know that. And neither did the sailors. And so we might have some questions here. Again, the Bible doesn't give us these questions. These are just questions that we may have. Why did Jonah offer to be thrown overboard? Why didn't he just jump overboard? Is he so committed to fleeing from God that he's willing to die of his own accord rather than obey God? It appears so. He's saying he's willing to die, take his own life, rather than do what God has told him to do. That's a serious matter for a prophet of God to come to that conclusion. By telling the sailors to pick him up and throw him overboard, he's asking them to become accomplices in his death. They would become his murderers. How might Jonah have reacted in this current situation? Well, we might say that Jonah should have repented on the spot and resigned himself to obeying God. He might easily have said, take me back to Joppa. I'm going to obey the God of heaven, whom I truly do fear, and I will do what he's commanded me to do. And this may be exactly what the sailors expected, because we, we see this. In verse 13, nevertheless, or we could say but again, the men rowed hard to return to land. They were trying to get Jonah back to land, back to where he needed to be. But they couldn't. They couldn't get him back there. Who do you think was responsible for that? Again, we see God in absolute control over everything that is happening in this entire situation. Everything that's going on from the the storm, the sound sleep of Jonah, the words of the captain, the confession of Jonah, the fear of the sailors, everything that's happening is all within the compassionate, caring, guiding hand of a holy God. The men tried to row back to land, but they could not. Jonah is trying to flee from the presence of the Lord, but he's going to find out he cannot. And besides this, I don't know that the the men truly wanted to throw Jonah overboard. That would be sending someone to their death. They knew that. If Jonah's God was so upset with him for running away, for fleeing, sorry, for fleeing, that he brought this violent storm upon them, what would this God of Jonah do if they killed the prophet of this God. 
putting Jonah to death by throwing him overboard might expose these sailors to more of God's wrath. But again, we see the hand of God at work. They cannot row back to land because the storm was getting worse and worse. Back in verse 11, the storm was increasing in, in its intensity. And here we, get, we read again, verse 13, it's becoming more tempestuous, as the New King James says. The NIV says it was getting even wilder. The Hebrew says there was, it was rushing about, it was scattering it about as in a whirlwind. And so in verse 14, the men pray. Good idea. The men pray. They call on the Lord. We pray, O Lord, please do not let us perish for this man's life and do not charge us with innocent blood. For you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. And again, we come to a very powerful phrase in this narrative. For you, O Lord, have done as it pleases you. But this is at the end of their prayer. The men prayed to the Lord. They likely do not yet have a complete understanding of who Jonah's God is. But they offer their prayer as sincerely as they know how and pray that this God of Jonah will not let them perish as a result of Jonah's disobedience. It's ironic Jonah doesn't pray. At least not in chapter 1. Chapter 2, that's different. Then he starts praying. But for right now, we have the unsaved Gentiles praying to the Lord. And the one, who is Jonah's, uh, the one who is God's prophet is not praying. But as far as we know, is still committed to fleeing from God. And then they acknowledge that this God of Jonah has done things according to what pleases him. Jonah has tried to do everything according to what pleases him. It hasn't turned out so well. But these Sailors understand that this sovereign God of Jonah does things according to his will, according to as he pleases. What a great example, a testimony of how God is concerned about these sailors. But he's also very concerned still about Jonah, his prophet. And so in this verse, verse 14, we have another interesting note that we seem to be returning back to a focus on, on God. Although we have seen God working out things according to his, his plan, things that please him, we've seen evidence of his sovereignty, now we begin to see God's name occur with more frequency. Back in verse 3, we read about Jonah fleeing from God, and we read three times that he went to Tarshish, two times that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord, In this verse, the author records the name of the Lord three times, twice in the prayer of the sailors. They call on the Lord. We pray, O Lord, please do not let us perish for this man's life. Do not charge us with innocent blood, for you, O Lord, have done as it pleases you. We return to God's name. The focus is, it has been on God, but now the focus is specifically on the name of God. Verse 15, they picked up Jonah and they threw him into the sea and the sea became calm. Remember, they don't know about the fish. Jonah didn't know about the fish. The sailors assumed that was the end. And I think Jonah, as he was 
about to hit the water, realized this is it. What did the sailors expect would happen next? I don't know. I just want to remind you of the account in Mark chapter 4 when Jesus was in the boat with the disciples and there was a great storm and he was asleep on a pillow. And they woke him and they said, Teacher, don't you care that we're perishing? And he got up, he rebuked the wind, peace be still, the wind ceased and there was a great calm. And we read in in Mark 4, and they feared exceedingly. The disciples feared exceedingly and they said to one another, who can this be that even the wind and the sea obey him? They did not expect this kind of demonstration of power. They feared exceedingly. And in verse 16, this is what we read here as well. The men feared the Lord exceedingly. In verse 9, Jonah says, I fear the Lord God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. In verse 10, we read, the men were exceedingly afraid. And now in verse 16, it's the exact same wording as in verse 10. But this time, we have the direct object. They feared the Lord. They feared the Lord exceedingly. You know, in in Exodus, after God had parted the Red Sea for the Israelites and and the the army of Pharaoh was trying to chase them down and, and take over, and we read, the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. When Israel saw the great power which the Lord had used against the Egyptians, the people feared the Lord and they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. These sailors saw the mighty power of God. They didn't have the added benefit of having traveled and being taught by Jesus in the New Testament. This was some unknown God to them. Imagine their terror, their horror, when they saw the ocean just become calm and the wind stopped. And so we read that they offered sacrifices to the Lord and made vows. Again, no details. Likely they were not burnt offerings on board a ship. And what would they have offered as a sacrifice if... Pretty much all the cargo had been thrown overboard. Maybe they returned to Joppa and said, we're getting off the ocean as quick as possible, and they went back and offered sacrifices there. We don't know. But once again here, the author records the name of the Lord two times as the sailors offer their sacrifices and make vows. The men feared the Lord greatly, They offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. Ironically, this prayer is not from Jonah. Jonah is no longer with them. But from the pagan sailors. Then we come to the interesting twist that commentators like to discuss and talk about but I'm not really going to talk about it because I don't have any details. If you want details, you have the same text that I do. The Lord appointed a fish, a great fish. 
And he swallowed Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Those are the details we have. For years, skeptics have wondered whether this really could have happened. But they come from a worldview that is non-biblical, where miracles cannot happen, where only what can be understood by the human mind is possible. Which means that many of the events in this chapter, which we just read, could not have happened. Which means that this book, the whole book of Jonah, likely is just an allegory. And what also means that the entire Bible would be out of the realm of possibility. Therefore, in their minds, miracles do not happen. But we believe the opposite. As believers in Christ, we do believe in the supernatural and in the miraculous power of God. And we're, we're thrilled, we're encouraged, we're humbled when we realize how committed our loving Father is in bringing us and his children to accomplish his plan. It makes perfect sense to us that the Lord God of heaven, who made the sea and who made the dry land, is sovereign over all nature, over mankind as well as over the entire animal world, even the fish that he has made. Many themes have been suggested to be the key theme for Jonah. The sovereignty of God, God's compassion, his mercy, God's love for all people in addition to the Jews, God's desire for all to be saved, a missionary book, a missionary call. And I'm sure that there is much truth in all of these because we see this. But here in chapter 1, I believe a a very real theme is a very simple theme. And that is simply obedience. Just obey. Why is that so hard? I remember telling our children when they were growing up and we would tell them to do something and they refused. And then you got the punishment and you got the crying. You got all this going on. I would say life would be so much easier if you just... Just obey. Just do what you're told. It's really not that hard. But it is. It is hard. We always choose best when we choose not only to fear God and to love him, but to prove our love by obeying him. Life is much better when we obey our Lord and Master and commit ourselves to following his commands, no matter if they make sense to us or not. If we call him Lord, then we must honor him and obey him as Lord. Let's pray. Father, as we close this time here of studying your word and and reading about this prophet, your prophet Jonah, remind us of the times that we ourselves have been disobedient to what you have called us to do. We think our ways are better than your ways. We think you don't know what's good for us. You don't know what's best for us, and you're trying to hurt us. We think we can make the wisest decisions, that your ways are not really the best. Please forgive us for these times. Give us the courage to trust you, to obey you, 
to know that you are always right, that your ways are always best, that you are the almighty God who keeps your covenant, your promises to us. Give us that faith, Father. Help us to obey you so that we can see, we can be, we can see the examples of all that you have done for us, the evidence of how much you truly care, of how powerful you are. And then as a result, we can draw so much closer to you and have our faith built because we truly fear you as Savior and as Lord. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.